Episode 31 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Hey, my name is Colin Henry. You might know me on Instagram as Fly All The Things. I'm a flight instructor from California. I also do contract flying on a King Air and a TBM 850. What is going on, AV Nation? And welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot Podcast 2018 edition. I cannot believe it is 2018 already. 2017 flew by. It was so much fun to create this podcast and start Pilot to Pilot. I can't wait to see where it is headed in 2018. I wanna go ahead and thank everyone that listens to this podcast, the AV Nation, and the Patreon supporters. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much for your support, whether it's monetary or whether you're just letting me know on Instagram, Facebook, or through email that you love the podcast and that has helped you decide to make a career out of aviation. That is what it's all about. It is all about helping you guys out, getting more people in the aviation world, getting more people in the AV Nation. Guys, thank you so much. From the bottom of my heart, I truly love doing this and love just seeing where this is going and how this is helping people. It is awesome. I want to go ahead and let you know that if you do love today's episode with Colin, you can leave us a review on iTunes. You can actually leave us a review on Facebook as well, or let us know on our Instagram page at pilot to pilot, leave us a DM, or you can email us at pilot to pilot HQ at gmail.com. Also make sure to check out our website, pilot to pilot HQ.com. We're going to be launching version 2.0 soon as my boy Luigi is going to be helping us out and creating that. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be more ways for us to communicate with each other, whether it's forums, whether it's a job board, just so many things are running through my mind right now. If you have any good ideas, let me know. Let me know what you want out of Pilot to Pilot and what we can do to make the best community ever. Aviation today I'm talking with Colin Henry. You might know him by his Instagram name, at FlyAllTheThings. Some of the things we talk about in today's podcast are how Colin didn't love flying when he was younger, how TBM was Colin's first plane he ever flew, why he chose to be a CFI at a Part 61 school instead of a Part 141 school, why it is important to recognize how you learn, and Colin talks about how he had an engine failure and had to make an emergency landing when he was flying last year. It is a great story and one that you want to hear and one that you can learn from and to see how his training kicked in immediately and how he was able to land safely and it really wasn't an issue. Aviation Nation, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Please share it with all your friends. Let's get 2018 off to a great start with the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Let everyone know. If you're at a flight school, just mass email everyone. You're, you're, you're CFI, you're chief CFI, everyone you can think of in college, in high school, anyone. They don't even know if they want to be in aviation until they listen to this podcast. So let's go ahead and share it with everyone you know. And without further ado, let's go and get the podcast started. Here's Colin Henry. Hey, Colin, thanks for coming on the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Thanks for having me on, man. Good to be here. Glad our schedules finally worked out. So I know, man. It's together. been what, like, I think six months. I tried to reach out to you six months ago to try to get this recorded. Yeah, <laughs> then I think one, I think one of us either like came back from a flight or you were on a trip or something, and we're just like, you know what? I need a nap. <laughs> yeah, that was me. I I was out in Omaha and I was up like all night waiting on freight and UPS, and I was like, dude, I'm sorry, I gotta pass out or else I'm not gonna be able to fly later today. <laughs> yeah, then I think the next time, I think when I was. Um, I think you reached out like a couple months ago, like after that, it was just like, well, I'm on a trip like the next four or five days or I was on vacation or something like that. So such is life, man. Always something with the aviation life. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, cool, man. First question I'll ask everyone and I'll ask you the same thing is what got you into aviation? Like why become a pilot? So I grew up in Northern California, a little bit North of San Francisco, um, in a little town called Marin County. Um, so kind of a middle-class upbringing in an upper-class neighborhood. So 
you know, we weren't loaded or anything, but, you know, we were, you know, I never had to worry about too much, but most of my family is from kind of central and southern New Jersey. And every year for Christmas or over summer vacation or, um, you know, whenever we wanted to go out and visit our grandparents, I'd get, you know, we'd hop on, you know, Continental or United and fly over there. You know, it's that four and a half to five hour flight. And when I was younger, um, I actually didn't like flying too much. The whole turbulence thing kind of weirded me out and um, all the sensations and everything that was going on was just <laughs> was really uncomfortable for me as a kid. And it didn't help that my mom, you know, does not like flying much at all. <laughs> she's, you know, she's, she's used to it, but she, you know, she's like, well, I only do it because I have to and that sort of stuff. So I don't, you know, I think some of that anxiety kind of rubbed off on me from her, but I was always intrigued um, by takeoffs and landings. I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Like, how does this, you know, big thing with a bunch of people on it, you know, suddenly, you know, just get off the ground or how does the pilot, you know, make it come back down and land um, and all those things. And I think that kind of building up over the years, you know, being on airplanes a little bit and um, just becoming more and more comfortable being in the air and seeing a couple sunsets, you know, as we're coming into land and that sort of stuff, the scenery and um, the speed. And, you know, even after a while, a little bit of the turbulence and the high altitude stuff, I got used to it and started enjoying it more um, the more that I understood it. Um, and then when I was in high school, um, I was kind of a sim geek, you know, I had, <laughs> I guess it was like, you know, flight sim 04. I think, I don't know if FSX was out by that point, but yeah. I was definitely, I was definitely a bit of a sim Lord. That's awesome. Um, There's a lot of them out it, there, so it's nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And so, you know, that's, that's how so many guys got their start, you know, just taking off out of Mike's field, you know, in right. the, you know, in the, um, in the Learjet or whatever. So I did that for you know, the first like couple years of high school. And, you know, that was definitely kind of inspiration. And then when I was 15 or 16, um, my father owns a martial arts school in the area. And one of his um, students' parents um, owned a plane up at the local airfield. And they invited, you know, me and my father um, out to go, you know, just to go for a ride. And at that point, I hadn't really dabbled in general aviation too much. Um, I was more of kind of, you know, I knew my Boeings and I knew my Airbus, but that was kind of it. Right. And, you know, I got to the, got to the field and I was, I was expecting, you know, um, like a 152 or a Skyhawk or, you know, maybe, you know, a Baron or a Bonanza, something like that. Great. Um, we get to the hangar, we pull up and it's a TBM 700. Oh, dang. And that was kind of, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like a plane and the gear goes up and it's got flaps that look like, and I, I was just ab geeking like crazy. Yeah. Um, didn't really know what to do. So my first actual bit of stick time was flying a TBM 700 kind of over in Northern California. And that was, that, that was, <laughs> that, that set the board pretty high, right? Yeah, it was, it does, it was, it was yeah. one of, and it was one of those things where, you know, I had never flown an actual airplane before and I wasn't sure, you know, what, you know, you know, aspects of, you know, being a, you know, a sim geek would translate into actually flying the aircraft, but a lot of it did. Um, and that's one of those underrated things about flight simulator is that, you know, even though you can't have the same, you know, the, the you know, the G forces and sensations and whatnot, um, you know, all the instrumentation, a lot of the air traffic control procedures, the runways, some of the lights and, you know, some of the markings and stuff, they really do translate into the real world. And having that kind of click 
was probably the, you know, one of those moments where I thought, you know what, you could totally do this professionally, you know, if you put your head to it. Right. And we, and we had gone on, I mean, we went on a couple trips after that, you know, we'd do some IFR stuff, you know, going down to Palm Springs or, you know, um, Phoenix or what, or wherever, um, just on a couple trips. And then, you know, he'd have, you know, he'd teach me how to do the radio. So I was making, you know, IFR call outs, you know, and, you know, at, 28, 29,000 feet thinking that, you know, this is, this might be the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> and, you know, I just, you know, I just kind of fell in love with it. And That's so cool. after I graduated, went to community college for a couple of years, um, got my associates. I studied psychology, um, for anyone that's curious. And then I moved back home and worked, um, just kind of did the standard post college jobs or even just the college jobs. And you know, I worked at a pizza shop. I did a couple other things. Um, a few of my friends and I were really into music. We all DJed during college, kind of before dance music blew up a little bit. <laughs> That's what's up. Um, and so we ended up playing, you know, playing a bunch of gigs in the city, that sort of stuff. Cool. Um, and then I ended up actually working back at my father's martial arts school for probably four whatever years, like four to five years. And that kind of, you know, had me falling in love with teaching and the processes that go into it and that sort of stuff. And I was able to save money and kind of, you know, keep myself engaged in aviation as much as I can, be it, you know, you know, through the sim or the occasional lesson when I had enough saved up. But it ended up getting to the point where, um, you know, I had to kind of make a decision as far as what I wanted to do. And I had never really given, um, given aviation like a, you know, a 110% kind of honest shot. You know, I had dabbled in, you know, the light sport thing and had taken a few lessons here and there and, you know, kind of knew a little bit about what went into it, but I never, I never, you know, c committed myself fully. Right. Um, and so had enough saved up, you know, kind of, you know, took out a little bit of a loan for it <laughs> and, um, you know, enrolled in, um, Aerosome Flight Academy down in Florida. I think it's now called L3. I think L3 Technologies bought it out, but okay. it was Aerosome back, um, back when I, when I got there, um, spent a little under two years down there, got my private all the way up to, uh, all the way up to CFI, moved back home. And here we are. Did you have a job while you're out there or did you just strictly focus on flying? It was flying 100% of the time. It I took you ate. two hours to get everything or two years to get everything from there. I wish it took me two hours. <laughs> right. Um, be a, little, a lot I, cheaper and a lot faster. Be, <laughs> Exactly. Be a little bit cheaper. But no, I, I think from start to finish, it was like a little over a year and a half. Okay. Um, nice. you know, and they advertised it at the time as to being, you know, a year, um, give or take, but you know, aviation, nothing ever goes as planned. So, you know, between weather delays, check ride weights, that sort of stuff, it was, it was more like a year and a half. Okay. Um, but no, I had, I had saved up quite a bit. You know, I definitely had some support from, you know, family, That's um, good. you know, just, just living down there. And, um, yeah, it was, it was about a year and a half that I was down there. And, you know, I knew probably, you know, once I started my, you know, my CFI stuff that I didn't want to teach there. Um, it's pretty rigid and that sort of stuff. And it didn't really suit my teaching style. So right. was it, know, a, it was that, a part 141 school, right? Yeah, this is part 141. Um, so it's very, it's very rigorous. It's very kind of, you know, as they say, drinking from the fire hose, right. you know, you're, it's just information overload all the time. You'll and get like a you lot see, of, yeah. you just don't have much say in what you want to do. You know, like if you want to go work on landings, you can't just, you have to do what the lesson plan is set out for you to do that day. 
Exactly. And it, and it can be frustrating because a lot of the times when I was flying down there, especially during my private training, a lot of the stuff that I needed work on was stuff that wasn't being covered immediately. And I would start getting rusty just really, really, really fast. Like doing, you know, short field, short field takeoffs and landings were two of the things that I really struggled with early on. And, you know, it, we, we only covered that kind of as I was getting up towards solo and then like maybe a lesson or two, um, before my check ride. So it was, so getting that practice was really, really hard, especially if it's something that you, you know, that you really do need to work on, but you can't just go back and, you know, just, you know, go back to the last lesson or whatever. You kind of have to just do what they tell you to do. For sure. Yeah. No, you, you have, like we said earlier, you just you don't have much freedom in it. Like it's, so some people love it because you work really hard and you just get to keep going after it and they need that kind of rigidity and need that kind of someone telling them what to do. But part 61 offers kind of the freedom just to enjoy flying, enjoy what you're doing and enjoy your training. And I kind of like how you said that it didn't suit your, what you wanted to teach and how you wanted to teach. So you went out and found other options because I mean, being a CFI, you can pretty much go anywhere right now. Everyone will pay for a CFI, which is really nice. And you can kind of pick who you want to choose, who you, you can pick who you want to work for. Exactly. I think there's so many, you know, big things about, you know, about Aerosim that worked really well. And there were some things that I just didn't like. Um, it suited my learning style really well. I'm very, I'm very visual, kind of very linear when it comes to how I learn. And if you can just throw me just 100% into something where I don't have to worry about work or any family issues or that sort of stuff where I can just, you know, fully commit myself to getting it done. Like that's ideal for me. I don't have any distractions, you know, any of that sort of stuff while I was down there. Had a great group of friends, of course, but, you know, I could just fully immerse myself in aviation. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, I enjoyed it as much as I did. But to anyone looking into it, you know, be it a 141 or whatever, know how you learn best. Know how you, you know, intake information. Know the things that you struggle with. Know how it's best presented to you. All those little things, it's so important, especially when you're making a commitment, you know, be it, you know, just not just from a career standpoint, but from a financial standpoint as well. It's not a small amount of money that you're going to throw at this. So you need to be able to, you know what you're getting yourself into and um, really just know yourself before you jump in. Right. Yeah. Knowing how you learn will help you save money and will just help you help speed up the process. I didn't figure out, it took me a while to figure out how I learned because I started training. I was like 20 years old and not many 20 year olds really know how they learn and, and yeah. you're just getting into college, you know, you're trying to figure everything out, but knowing how you learn and knowing how to study and knowing how to just go after it hundred percent and give it your all will definitely speed up the process. It speeds up the process and it also cuts down on the amount of kind of repeat training that you have to do. I would be flying four to five days a week, you know, sometimes and you're constantly in the air. You're constantly being around um, other pilots. You know, there were probably 400 of us there at the time. Like it's a big, big school and you're just you're just immersed in it and you can't escape it even if you tried because all your friends are pilots as well right um so there's you know there's a you know you're just around it all the time and i think always being able to have my head in it and have the amount of instructors there and resources that i had um really served me well um when it comes to being a cfi because i understand you know that people learn differently and you know, certain students need certain things and some of the problem areas that everyone has. And I right. think that served me, you know, that was very beneficial for me in the long run, especially teaching out here now. 
No, definitely. It is definitely very, very beneficial to know how you learn. And knowing how you learn will also help you see how other people learn as well. If you want to get in the CFI world, that's pretty much half the battle is figuring out how each individual student learns, wouldn't you say? Exactly. No, definitely. I think the biggest thing about it is one, knowing how your student learns. And two, the thing I like about teaching, because I teach part 61 now. Yeah. So in teaching part 61, you have the freedom to cater to that. If you're in, if you're in the 141 world, you're kind of just, it's very cookie cutter, you know, and it's, you know, they kind of say one size and then make it fit everybody right. when we know that that's not always the case. Definitely not. Um, you know, and, and like I said, it does work well for, you know, some people if you know yourself well enough, but you know, for the vast majority of the students that I've worked with, you know, a lot of them are just going flying for fun, you know, want to take a Cessna up on the weekend with their friends or whatever. They're not looking to make a career out of it. And obviously, you're going to teach things a little bit differently to someone that, you know, wants to, you know, fly triple sevens across the Atlantic versus <laughs> right? someone that's, you know, just going to take their Cirrus out for a weekend with their dog. For sure. And going back a little bit, talking about why did you choose that flight school? Like you're in California, you have Arizona that's really close by. You just have California in general where you can go learn how to fly. Like why go all the way out to Florida to get your training done? A lot of it was personal for me. I had been in California. I never lived out of state my entire life. Um, I was born in Southern California, lived there for a couple of years, and then we moved up north in the early 90s. But even going to community college, I'd never left the state. Right. Um, so a lot of it was on a personal level, me just kind of wanting to go out and explore and see the world. You know, I had the travel bug at that point. So the desire to live somewhere different was definitely, you know, a push. But the other aspect was the weather. The weather in Florida, you know, anyone that has flown there will tell you that it is unpredictable on the best of days. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but this, you know, the school that I went to, they took you up in it. They didn't shy away from it. They said, hey, this is what you're going to have to deal with. If you're going to make a profession out of it, we're going to teach you. We're going to keep you safe, but we're not going to shy away, you know, for, you know, an air met tango. If it pops up in the middle of training, we're going to say, hey, this is what it's like. And a lot of flight schools, you know, especially in California, they see a, you know, a marine layer or just a solid layer of clouds come in that could be just a very stable air mass and no one will go fly. Yeah. Um, they just won't take guys in it, you know, and I, I don't, I don't know if I can speak for any other school, you know, in particular, but, you know, sometimes that can be, you know, that can leave you at a disadvantage when you do get out into the real world and you do have clouds and weather that you really have to deal with. And I wanted to have that experience under my belt so that, you know, if I were to come back here and teach and suddenly the marine layer rolls in over the Pacific Ocean, it's not going to completely freak me out. And yeah, I'm going to know how to know deal with to it. Do. Yeah, exactly. Because that definitely happens to people. The marine layer can uh, really affect a flight from what I've heard. I've never, from what I've heard, I've never actually flown out west, but I've heard it's oh, 100%. fun. <laughs> 100%. And it's not that it isn't fun, but yeah. it's under it's understanding why it happens and what some of the side effects are of yeah. it. And having, you know, your options ready to go. Like around the Bay Area, we have just a ton of small airports around here, but only some of them, you know, actually, you know, suffer the, uh, the adverse, you know, effects of, you know, a marine layer coming in. There's only a couple that you have to deal with that go into full, you know, instrument conditions. The field that I train at is almost always VFR. Oh, nice. Um, even when that layer comes in, you've got 
just kind of this very small sort of mountain range that's between the ocean and the airport. So we can take off and go VFR pretty much wherever we want. That's it's awesome. just, you know, when it's rainy or whatever, that can definitely make things a little bit difficult. But I'd flown in it, you know, and I was, you know, I'm, I'm prepared for it now. So I feel confident, you know, making an informed decision rather than, you know, just backing down when you might not have to. For sure. Yeah. That's, that's good that they do that because I mean, like you said, you're going to have to fly in that stuff eventually. So you might as well get used to it earlier and going back to your training a little bit. What was it like? Like, did you enjoy your training? Did you not like your training? Did you have any kind of scary inter instances with your instructors or with your airplanes or anything? On the whole, I really enjoyed my training. I'm kind of one of those guys that didn't really fall in love with you know, the airlines or corporate or flight instructing, I just like flying airplanes, yeah. you know, and I think that was crucial for me at the end, of, you know, at the end of the day, because you could put me in a Skyhawk or a Cirrus or a Boeing or whatever. I'm still going to have that same stupid smile on my face. <laughs> you right. know, it, 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 do, it doesn't, it doesn't go away. So for the most part, my training actually was, you know, very enjoyable. I had a couple, I had a couple instructor changes during private, which made things a little bit difficult but it ended up working out in my favor i think um and then instrument instrument is you know one of the harder ones to get but i think it's also one of the most important um for pilots to get commercial um that was basically a bunch of regulations it went okay that's still the only check ride that i ever failed yeah um the the, uh, the commercial multi-ride did my single add-on and then CFI was was actually really fun. It was, you know, from an academic standpoint and from, you know, having a teaching background, it was really cool to actually be able to, you know, give ground briefs and, you know, start practicing how I would teach certain maneuvers and that sort of stuff. So overall, I really did enjoy my time. Um, the only couple hiccups were one, um, the pink slip on my multi-engine ride. What happened? And so we were, so I did my multi-engine in a seminal. Okay. Um, and the oral went really well. Um, past that, just fine. We got out to the plane. Everything about the check ride so far had been going really well. And then on the single engine operation, so when they cut your engine, um, I hit the throttle first instead of the mixture, as you're gotcha. supposed to do. So you're supposed to go mixture, then then adjust your props, then adjust your throttle. But my hands were already on the throttle end. You know, I was just nervous or whatever, and I hit the throttle first. Gotcha. I mean, I and get that. that. That's it. not like, I don't know necessarily that's enough to fail someone, but like, <laughs> it's not like you put yourself in danger by doing that, you know? It's one of those things that in the right scenario, it could be dangerous, yeah. right? If you, if you, oh, you know, if you overpressure, you know, if you, you know, add too much power right. in all the way, then you risk blowing up the engine. We were right. high enough. We were high enough where it didn't matter. But if you're at a lower altitude and your engine quits and it's nice and cool outside, I can definitely see how it would, you know, how it would have been a problem. Right. And it's one of those things where, um, if you fail something on a check ride and you take it the right way, you will never make that mistake again. That so, is the truth, you know, yeah. you know, you know, just, just take it, just take it as a lesson, um, put it in your bank of experience and, you know, live to fly another day. Yeah. At the end of the day, a check ride is still a learning experience. Just cause you fail doesn't mean you're never going to be a good pilot. You can still go back, go back up and take your check ride again and still be a pilot and still get hired by the airlines or whoever you want to work for. Exactly. And the other thing that I'll, you know, mention is that not all check rides are created equal. Not right. all check rides are viewed equal. Like a private pilot check ride, you're, you know, you don't entirely know what you're up against. You don't, you know, you can read as many, you know, um, gauges and whatnot as you want. But at the end of the day, that's your first check ride. You know, a private pilot, you know, a private pilot check ride is, you know, it's intimidating, but 
only so because you've never done it before. Once you get to, you know, commercial multi or you're adding on to your commercial rating, then you're expected to know, you know, what you're getting yourself into. And so the DPEs don't tend to be quite as forgiving right. once you get into the higher check writing ranges. But, you know, that's, that's something that I've noticed just over time is that, you know, if you, fail one check ride or if you fail another check ride people will definitely you know take one failure differently over another with all your students what's the one thing that usually hangs them up on the check ride not necessarily if they fail i know we talked earlier said that you have a hundred percent pass rate right now which is awesome but is there anything that the de or dp comes back to you and your student comes back she's like i really did not know this like what really hangs up students Usually what hangs up students um, for me on the oral is a lot of the weather stuff and it's one of those things that is really, I mean, as you know, you're a freight guy. It's really important that you understand exactly, you know, what, you know, what fronts are going to do this and the characteristics of different kinds of air masses, the different types of clouds, the different kinds of weather reports, all of those things. And keeping those numbers straight is really hard. It's hard for me, honestly. It's, right. it's still a very difficult thing. And so usually on the oral, that's the biggest um, the biggest thing that, you know, I'd gotten feedback on just, you know, you know, he was very nice about it. He came up and was just like, Hey, you know, if you could brush up on anything, you know, just make sure that, you know, your guys are you know well versed on weather because, you know, it is important around here. You have a lot of changing weather at West. So it's, so it's, it's something that you need to know as far as the flights. Um, it's usually stalls. And I feel like that's common for, you know, most um, for most students, it's the part that gets everyone nervous. Um, and it's the part that you're probably not going to practice quite as much as say landings or steep turns or cross country flight planning, that sort of stuff that just, that just kind of picks up a little bit easier, but the stalls are something that everyone tends to shy away from at least initially. And so you never fully feel comfortable doing it. And that's when little things, you know, like nerves or just the pressure or any of that sort of stuff can really just get to you on a check ride. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you like you're not you still you're taking a check ride of what, like 40 hours or 70 hours. Like you've done yeah. so many stalls, but you don't know everything about a stall. You don't know how the airplane's going to react every time. And you just you still don't know everything. So it's still kind of an unknown a little bit, which I understand. I mean, most people getting into flying, I feel like are a little bit afraid of stalls, which I was when I first got in. I was afraid of stalls and spins until I just kept doing them. Like you can't stop doing them. You can't shy away from them. you got to keep practicing them. Because you just, it's something you need to know. You need to know how to recover if that ever does happen to you. Now, nine times out of 10, you're not going to stall the airplane, but there are going to be instances where you do stall the airplane or you could stall the airplane and you need to know how to get out of it and get out of it safely. Oh, 100%. I, th I, I was one of those guys that did not like doing, I still don't like doing stalls if I'm perfectly honest. That's but why these I didn't become a CFI because I don't want to do stalls <laughs> and spins for eight hours a day. The joke that I have with my students is that, you know, the reason that we've got leather seats in the Skyhawk is so it's easy to clean up all the crap that they're going to, you know, <laughs> leave when they, yeah. you know, when they put themselves in the spin for the first time. Yeah. And, and I, I feel like that's a rite of passage for most CFIs. Just, um, you know, the first, first time you get spun by a student or the first time they porpoise a landing or the first time you send one of them solo. Gosh, bad memories there. But, you know, <laughs> Those, you know, those sort of things, they're all kind of, you know, they're things that, you know, any CFI has been through and, you know, we can all kind of relate. Oh, man, my student put me in a spin today. It's like, well, welcome to the club now. You're one of us. What's the craziest thing a student's done to you? If you're allowed to say, I don't know if they're still your student or not. 
Um, they are they are still my student. They have since passed their check ride. Okay. Um, but one of them one of them put me yeah one of them put me in actually a pretty good spin. Really? Um, were you doing a maneuver or was it just flying around? What were they doing? We were doing power on stalls. Okay. <laughs> so if it's going to happen at any point, like, yeah, I'm still guarding the controls with all my students. If something happens on a power on stall, I'm like, this is going to spin. Yeah. And we fl- and we fly the, um, the SP Skyhawk. So okay. one, it doesn't want to stall at any angle of attack. And two, you've got a ton of power compared to, you know, a little 152. Right. So, you know, the, the amount of P factor is just so much greater. And so we were doing stalls nice and high up over, um, just off the coast, probably about, you know, a quarter mile, half mile off the coast, nice and smooth. Um, and we're at like 4,500 feet. I, I take, I take my students high up for stalls for this exact reason. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, you know, just didn't add enough rudder and it just started spinning and he just sort of locked up and panicked. Um, did he lock had, up on the controls or did he at least let go of the controls and just give you the airplane? He, he let go, he let go after he realized what exactly was happening. You know, <laughs> I called, you know, I called, I called for the control, you know, I called for the controls, you know, my aircraft and yeah. he, he, he definitely handed them over, but you could see it shook him up really yeah. well. And, you know, I was pretty shaken up as well, but you know, you can't really show it too much this right. is what i've you know this is like this is what i've been trained the joke is that you know as a cfi since you're sitting on the right side of the flight deck you're only you're trained to learn how to sweat on the right side of your face <laughs> only yeah. so the student can't see that happening but um yeah and you know once we recovered it i just kind of looked at him and i said that's why you add rudder yeah. he just kind of gave me that nod like okay i get it that's now right. <laughs> you know that's what they yeah. and we, and we we lost about 800 feet oh, in, that, in that spe- in that in that spin but that's spin. Yeah, I know. We, we went down pretty good. Um, but like I said, you know, he'll never make that mistake again. And he didn't, you know, he was right on the rudder every single time because, you know, he experienced firsthand, you know, what it's like to get into a spin. And sometimes, you know, as a student or even as an instructor, that's exactly what you need. It is. No, I mean, that could be the pushing point to him finally understanding why you need so much right rudder or why you need to, to do that in a power on stall or power off stall because you can spin the airplane and it has happened and it will happen. And it's a good thing you're at 4,500 feet because, <laughs> yeah, and it's also a good thing that he let go of the controls because I've heard a lot of stories about how they just like lock up, but they don't let go of the controls and they don't want it to do. And I've heard stories about instructors having to like punch their students or slap their students <laughs> and get them to let go. Hey, whatever works, man. Desperate yeah. times. If yeah, you're if man. you're if you're if you're staring right down at the ground and you can see it coming up, I'd punch my student too. I'm not Knock above that. Put him to sleep. Exactly. <laughs> Put him to the bed ground. real yeah, quick. Be like, now what'd you do wrong? <laughs> just just give him a just give him a quick Draymond Green kick. There you go. From the other yeah. side, and you're and you're good. I'm like, well, see, there you go. Yeah, that's man. that's why we don't. That's that's why we add rudder kids. Yeah, and we're, we're gonna go back to land. <laughs> exactly. That's funny. So, uh, did, was he right back into flying after that? Did he take a day off or did he want to keep doing stalls? What happened after that? He was one of those once a week students. So when okay. we came back, you know, he came back that next week and we went up and we flew and, you know, again, and it was, it was fine. That was really the only hiccup that he had. Frankly, that's one of the, um, hiccups that pretty much every single one of my students has had is power yeah. on stalls. Um, just, underestimating with the amount of rudder that you've got to add. And you, as you know, you've got to add a lot. Yep. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that is so important to understand because, you know, you can, you know, you can put an aircraft into a spin, you know, fairly easy if you know what to do at any altitude, at any airspeed. Um, and rudder control is just, 
outrageously important. And so that's a really good way for them to understand that. The price of that, of course, is every single student that comes in, I'm like, all right, when are they going to spend me? Like, I'm just waiting <laughs> for it. You know what I mean? I was like, all right, they're going to do it at one point. Yeah. Um, you know, but, you, you know, I've been there now. I know how to handle it and I'm not going to let them, you know, get into something super unsafe. But I do think it's important for them to understand like, hey, this is why you add rudder or, you know, this is why you keep your patterns tight, you know, in case your engine fails, you know, that sort of stuff. What was, uh, you mentioned earlier how you had kind of, uh, an experience about sending your student out on their first solo. Do you have any good stories about that? Um, well, first off, when you're soloing, you know, when you're soloing a student, it's, it's one of those sensations that doesn't quite get old, no matter how many times it's done. I've only done it a few times. I'm still a fairly recent CFI, but, um, it's one of those things that, has always every single time no matter how prepared my student is it always gets my heart rate going just always um <laughs> so the so the first the first student that i soloed um he's since gone on and gotten his license he's he's a good pilot he was 17 when he soloed and you know never had any worries about him all that sort of stuff and i think because he was my first student i was extra careful with him and covered the, all the bases to make sure that you know like he really was ready like i had talked to you know tower a few times and said hey can you throw some stuff at him you know just you know just you know while we're up in the pattern just to you know just to make sure that nothing was really going to freak him out yeah and we end let me see so we ended up um coming back in after our last lap i said all right you know, signed his logbook, sent him on his way, you know, give me three laps, don't kill anyone. <laughs> and he went out, he got through the first lap really well. Second lap was even better. You know, he got some tire squeal on the second landing and, you know, that was, that was a, you know, that was a good sound for sure. Yeah. Then he taxis back and goes for the third one. He takes off and then tower clear. And while he's coming around, um, kind of base to final, for whatever reason, Tower decided it was a good idea to send um, another guy out in front of him mm -hmm. um, to take off. And this guy who was in a Cirrus basically just sat on the runway for the longest time. And I'm like, I hope my student sees him and just goes around immediately. <laughs> you know, he was, he was literally just waiting on the runway, I guess, you know, lining up or waiting to go. Or maybe his, you know, castering nose wheel was all bent out of shape or something right. like that. But he was he was just waiting on the runway. I'm like dude, there's no way you're going to land. And literally the second that air traffic control said, go around, he was already in the process. I heard his engine throttle right up, Yeah, told him to go around, you know, to the left side of the runway and then had him turn his crosswind pretty much over midfield and, you know, beat the Cirrus around um, to the downwind lake on the other side of the pattern. Right. And, you know, at this point, you know, you're at a 2,800 foot runway and there are three other guys in the pattern already. So he was kind of thrown in and, you know, he handled it really, really well. But that definitely got my heart going because that was not <laughs> something that, you know, I could have ever prepared right. him for. You're like, oh, you gosh, know, you please, 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 please. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm just like, you know, first, like first things first that I tell all my students, like, hey, if anything, you know, like that happens or just gets busy, the only real responsibility that you've got is just fly that airplane. Yep. If you've got questions, ask Tower. Um, you know, but keep your eye, you know, keep your head on a swivel, look for traffic, but first and foremost, just fly the damn airplane. Right. That's the only thing you got to worry, you know, only thing that I want him worrying about. And he handled it like a pro. And from that point on, I'm like, this kid's going to be fine. That's good. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we've gone flying since he's gotten his license. Um, he took his girlfriend out 
Um, and I was, you know, doing pattern work uh, with another student of mine. And, you know, it was cool seeing him on the ramp and um, just how much uh, just how much he's improved since then. So it's really good to see him doing well. What's the feeling like when you finally sign off someone to go take a check ride? Are you really nervous? Are you like, hey, man, like we did this together. Like, I'm so proud of you. Like, go get this. Or are you just like freaking out? Like, please pass, please pass, please pass. I would imagine it would be like. You know, if you're, you know, if you're a dad and your kid's about to go off and get his driver's license, it's like giving him the keys to the car for the first time. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's that, it's that, well, I know you're ready, but I'm still nervous as heck and, you know, that sort of stuff. So it's, it's a little bit of mixed emotions. Yeah. I think with, um, I think with, um, with that student in particular, you know, just because it was, you know, my first time submitting someone, I think, I think honestly, I was relieved to be done with all the paperwork and IACRA and oh, all that sort of gosh, stuff. So, there, yes. so, so, you know, getting that out of the way, as any CFI will tell you is quite a, uh, it's quite an ordeal, but for the most part, um, you know, it's a lot, it's a little bit of nerves. It's a lot of pride really, because you've taken, you know, this person, right. From someone who, had no clue, you know, how to take off, how to, you know, you know, go up or go down, how to land, how to do any of this sort of stuff. And now you're going to share airspace with them, you know, you know, going forward. And that is a really satisfying feeling, you know, on my part. And also, you know, remembering, you know, what that moment was for me when I, you know, got sent off from my first check ride. And when I got my ticket, you know, that was only a couple years ago, you know, so that, that feeling is still very fresh in my mind. So, you know, being able to sort of relive that um, just from, the, you know, from the other side with one of my students, it's, it's one of those things that I enjoyed a lot more than, um, than I expected to. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome, man. What's your favorite part about being a flight instructor in general, just teaching people knowing that you are helping them achieve this goal? Well, there's so many milestones in becoming a pilot, you know, before even getting to the check ride. There's the first flight, there's, you know, the first landing that you do without your instructor touching the controls, there's the first stall, there's the solo, then there's all the cross country stuff. But I, you know, so I think the biggest thing for me is being able to kind of, um, you know, relive my own experience through my students, but actually being able to make that happen. And it's, it's one of those weird things that I didn't entirely expect because, you know, I didn't really plan on being a CFI for, you know, a decent period of time where I thought I'd, you know, get a, you know, get a little bit of time and then, you know, move on to something else. But I found that it's something that I really enjoy being able to see something click um, with one of my students, like when they finally put two and two together and they're like, oh my gosh, I understand it now. <laughs> and, you know, it kind of gives them that extra boost of confidence and kind of, you know, ups their game. And it's all it's all of those things really combined in that everyone has their own sort of story or reason why they fly. But, you know, for, you know, and to be able to make that happen for a lot of people, you know, is a really, really satisfying feeling. And it's something that I'm that I'm really proud of. So I enjoy a lot um, about teaching and seeing, you know, students kind of just when it all clicks in their head and, you know, um, all that hard work paying off. It's a yeah. very, very, you know, rewarding thing for me. Oh, to for sure. Yeah. That's one thing that I missed out on not being a CFI. I was too focused on how I didn't want to take another test. How I didn't want to take that crazy ground or that crazy aura <laughs> or whatever, but I do wish I had that experience and I wish that I could help other people learn how to fly. But I was just so focused on making money and starting my career, which, I mean, I'm glad I did. I got to fly a bunch of multi-engine aircraft for like 300 hours, which not many people can say they get to do, which is really cool. 
But um, yeah, flight instructing is for some people and sometimes it's not. And it sounds like talking to you that you are a great instructor and that it just comes naturally to you. So your students are very lucky to have you. I appreciate that. I mean, it, I think it's one of those, it's one of those um, aspects of aviation and one of those careers that you can go to that you especially have to have passion for. I mean, it's one, and it's one of those, um, those aspects where it just takes a certain kind of person to be able to do it. For the most part, a lot of the martial arts teaching that I had done previously actually set me up really well to, you know, not even just be a good instructor, but to combine it with, you know, something that I'm really passionate about, you know, aviation. And when you bring those two together, you know, it's, it's a rare thing. And it's also pretty rare to find, you know, you know, a fairly, you know, a fairly young instructor, like I'm 27 next week, um, who doesn't really care so much about time building per se. The hour, the hours will come, right? They're only going to come as fast as you fly. Um, so, you know, taking pressure off of hours and just making sure that, you're the best CFI that you can possibly be. That's awesome. That's not, that's, and that's not to say that, you know, there are, you know, that, you know, I want to be a CFI forever. (laughs) I I don't, but it's also one of those things where I understand that, you know, Hey, this is one of the better ways that you can build time to get to the next stage in your career, whatever that is. But for the time that you are here and the time that you are teaching, you need to be the best CFI that you can possibly be. And you have to understand what your role is, understand, you know, kind of what goes into it, be outrageously patient. Yeah. Um, and, and just give your 100% at whatever it is you're doing. We all have other goals and that sort of stuff. And it definitely helps that I enjoy teaching and that I'm fairly good at it. But the biggest thing is just commit yourself fully um, to being the best, you know, the best instructor that you can be because, you know, your students deserve that. And frankly, you know, the pilots that they're going to be sharing airspace with you deserve that as well. For sure. Yeah, you need to be I mean, I've seen it happen and not necessarily with my own experiences, but I've heard stories about how some instructors are just there for the money or I mean, there's not a lot of money out there, but you try to make as much <laughs> money as you about, can. But I was about to say. Well, I mean, like they maybe will cancel on a student and they get like another $25 or something like that. So they'll kind of be kind of shifty in that kind of sense. But they also just, a lot of them or some use them for time too. It's like maybe they don't need to be reflying this lesson, but you just keep having to land. He's like, oh, I don't think they're ready yet. You know, it's kind of you hold on to them for so long when they could have taken their check ride a month ago. Yeah, exactly. I think what's so nice about the place that I work at is that they try to take all that pressure um, off of the instructors. Um, and just focus on, you know, me being in a position where I can do the best work That's good. with some, with some other schools, you know, sometimes they pay different hourly rates for, you know, ground instruction versus flight instruction with me, they pay me the same. So there's no pressure on me to take a student up and, you know, crappy weather or whatever, if I don't feel like it's going to be productive. And then I can just, you know, do an hour of ground. So they kind of removed a lot of the financial things that, you know, some, you know, shadier CFIs might use to, you know, gain a buck on their students. Right. They, we don't, we don't really have that. So they can put the focus back on, all right, you know, whatever you do, make sure it's productive, make sure that, you know, time isn't wasted and that sort of stuff. And just, you know, do what, you know, do what you've been licensed to do and For go, sure. you know, go, go create pilots. Right? Yeah. Do them a service. Don't do them a disservice. Exactly. And that's, and that's really what you're doing. Um, and, you know, set an example for, 
you know, the other instructors that they may have down the road, you know, if, you know, if one of them wants to go and get their instrument rating or, you know, pick a different instructor, you, you know, you as an instructor, you want to set the bar pretty high um, and be able to kind of, um, you know, let them know that, Hey, you know, there are some of us that enjoy doing this. And, you know, even when my students aren't, you know, aren't my students, they're still kind of my students, right. you know, I'll, ch- I'll no, check in with sure. them. You know, it's a, it's a relationship, you know, I check in with them from time to time, you know, if they want to go flying or, you know, just need something cleared up. They've all still got my number. And, um, you know, I try to be available to them as much as I can. Well, even when they become flight instructors, they're probably going to mimic their favorite flight instructor. So they've been getting screwed over the whole time, or if they've been getting really quality flight instructing, they're going to take one of those two kind of mentalities into their own flight instruction as well. Oh, 100%. And it's one of those things that I've seen, you know, with several of the instructors that I've had, and I've been lucky that they've all been very, very good. Um, But they've also had very quality instructors or very quality backgrounds, you know, in aviation, like one of my, one of my really good instructors, Adam, um, shout out to Adam, his father flies for, for Southwest. He's now a regional guy. Um, but he was my instructor for my instrument rating and he still to this day is one of those guys that I model a lot of my instructing off of, That's awesome. um, you know, and, and, you know, he's, he's a couple years younger than I am. So, you know, to, you know, to be that age and to be that sharp and be able to, to simplify things down, especially, you know, instrument flying and to be able to communicate it as well as he did, um, to me. Um, really set the bar high for me, you know, as far as how I teach, you know, my students kind of regardless of what it is. For sure. And we talked about your favorite thing about flight instructing. What's your least favorite thing? Is it flying? Is it doing stalls? Is it ground lessons? Is it just sometimes students cancel on you when the weather's perfect? What would you say is the least favorite? Um, honestly, it would probably, it would probably be just like the first, the first five hours are probably the hardest bits of instructing that I do because at that point they know nothing. Yeah. Right. They, 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 they don't, they don't know which one's the throttle from the mixture, which is kind of important. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, those sort of things. And you have to really be able to balance, okay, how quickly are they learning? You know, how do they learn all these variables, you know, are, you know, no pun intended up in the air and you don't really know how to, you know, how to deal with them. And so you try to kind of do one or two things with, you know, with your students and just kind of get a feel for their personalities, how they learn, what can kind of trigger them in some way, all of those little things while you're flying an airplane, right? You're, right. You know, you're trying to keep everyone out of trouble. So it's usually those first five hours when they're just getting comfortable with the airplane, when they're getting comfortable with me sitting next to them, and when I'm getting comfortable, you know, trying to figure out how they best you know take on this information so that's probably my least favorite part once you get the hang of that and that like i said it you know takes maybe four or five hours then the rest of it it's just kind of it's very individual then you can't really cookie cutter you know cookie cut anything for sure you know i mean in those first five hours there's a lot of trust being built whether it's you need to learn what they can do and how to trust them in certain situations like giving them letting them land letting them do stalls taking your hands off the controls when it's trust in them trusting in you that you're going to be a good instructor as well it's exactly and i think you know the other thing that um that i'll throw out is that you know trust apart apart from it just being essential like you said it goes both ways but it's also knowing that I'm not going to put them in a situation that I'm not in control of, right? Even if, you know, even if you put me in a spin, you know, which you, like I said, you will do at one point, 
Um, it is something that I am trained to deal with. It's right. something that I'm well versed in. And if we, you know, for whatever reason, you know, we go into some weather conditions that you might not feel particularly comfortable with, it's something that I probably am. Otherwise, we wouldn't be up there. Right. Um, and it relies a lot on, you know, me being very reassuring and sometimes giving that, you know, that occasional pat on the back when need be or the kick up the backside, you know, depending on what day it is. Um, <laughs> yeah. you, have to, you have to be able to do a little bit of both. And because your both of your lives are, you know, in the hands of, for the most part, your judgment. And sure. as you kind of progress through, um, progress through the training, the goal that I have is to hand over more and more of that accountability over to my student so that they start taking more and more ownership of the training and being able to understand. I want them to be able to come to me and say, Hey, I need some more practice on this or right. I don't feel as good at, you know, about, you know, weather or systems or whatever. Um, and that sort of stuff and really have them hold themselves accountable. And that makes it easier for me to do my job. Definitely. Yeah, it would definitely will. And I remember it was a couple months ago, probably, but you've actually had an engine failure before. And I remember, I think that's the first time I actually reached out to you because I've had an engine failure too. And I just want to reach out to you, let you know that it's important to get back in the airplane. Do you want to talk a little bit about what happened with the engine failure and kind of how that all happened? Yeah, sure. Definitely. Yeah. That was the first time that we actually talked. You yeah. reached out pretty much like the day after. We're like, hey, <laughs> good job. You know, yeah, you know, get back in the airplane. Yeah. Give credit um, where credit's due, man. If you do a good job. And I just want, I know when I had the engine failure, like I was kind of afraid to get back in the airplane, but I knew if I didn't do it now, I'd probably take a step back and maybe I'd start questioning my love for flying and everything like that. Yeah, you were right on the money there. But let's talk about that emergency, uh, that emergency landing that we had. So I was doing just touch and goes. Um, and soft field landing practice up at a private strip, um, a little bit north of a little bit north of this area. Okay. And this was in a Cirrus SR20. It had just come back from a fresh annual inspection. There's your first hint. Yep. Um, and we were just doing landings, doing touch and goes. Um, just myself. There were two other aircraft up there. We were all um, solo in our respective aircraft. And the sun was starting to go down, just a beautiful Sunday night for flying. It was picture perfect, not a ton of wind, not a cloud in the sky. This was kind of, you know, mid to late April of this year. And it was just ideal. It was one of those nights where, you know, I'm like, oh, this is why I enjoy flying so much. You know, <laughs> it, it, it had been a rough, you know, rough couple of weeks before. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, this is why I love this. Relax, kind of um, sit back a little bit, enjoy the pattern. Yeah. Exactly. It's that moral boost. Yeah. Um, and so we were coming. So I was coming around. I took off again. You know, I was going to go for like another lap or two. Like that was it. I was feeling pretty good with my landings. Um, turned downwind. Everything was fine. And then probably about midfield downwind, um, I had a really, really strong smell of fuel oh, start no. to come start to come <laughs> in through the um <laughs> just to kind of cut through the air and as you know it's you know low light it's a very it's a very particular smell and when For it sure. hits your nose it's like it's just like oh my gosh that is strong yeah you're like that's not and okay what's wrong exactly and it was so strong where you know on occasion you know if you just gas up the airplane and you start it up yeah you'll get a little bit of that whiff but this was like it hit you like a freight train they were it was just a night and day oh my gosh what's going on and i knew at that point that I, you know, I needed to get on the ground and check out what was going on. So you know, let them know. I'm like, Hey, I've got, you know, a strong, you know, smell of fuel up here. I'm going to come back in and land. They were like, okay, that's fine. 
probably about two or three seconds after that, the engine just stopped. Oh, and when I say it stopped, it went silent. Um, Felt like you're in a the, glider? Well, it sounded like I was in yeah. a Tesla, if I'm oh. perfectly honest. And, <laughs> and the, um, and the, the serious one, you know, when you're doing engine failures in that plane, you know, it floats about as well as a Tesla as well. So, <laughs> you know, the blade literally stopped in front of me. And, you know, I didn't really have time to think too much. I'm like, well, this sucks. Yep. Let, me, um, let me get it on the ground now. Get, exactly, get to work. And just, yeah. exactly. And just immediately turned. I had my flaps down to 50. At that, There's only two uh, flap settings on the Cirrus. There's 50% and 100%. Yeah. I already had my flap set at 50 and was about to start my base turn when the engine actually quit. So I was in a, you know, if there's an ideal place to have an engine failure, that's probably it. Yeah. Um, so turn base, kind of made, turn it into, you know, like a modified power off 180. Um, there were no immediate obstacles in my way and just kind of brought it into land. The only tricky thing that I had to worry about was that um, the second I shut off the electrical power, that kills literally everything in the Cirrus. You've got no radios, you have um, no flaps, so I had to make sure to get the flaps down. But crucially, um, you have no trim. Um, it's a fully electric trim system in the Cirrus, and once you flip off all the electronics, that you know that's it um so i had to really kind of gauge all right well plane set up now you know i've got my approach speed good i can land it now and then i shut everything off yeah um and you don't want to leave it on so long obviously because well there's a huge fuel thing that's taking place yep. and you know one you know one rogue wire can you know bye bye turn it in yeah yeah exactly you're you're you know you're turning into a barbecue real fast yep. which is not and ideal so, don't do that it is not ideal. <laughs> yeah. It is not. I, I love barbecues as much as anyone, but as know, long as I'm not, not the one being barbecued. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. This is not the kind of bar. You know, th- this is not ideal. No. So ended up shutting everything off. I cracked the door before I landed, um, and just came. You know, came back in and landed. It really wasn't um, as big of a deal as um, as I thought it was going to be. The one thing that did catch me off guard was just how quickly your training kicks in. And I know everyone says it. I know it's very cliche, you know, when someone talks about, you know, emergency procedures that they've experienced, but you know, your training really does kick in. It is there for you. Um, there wasn't really any, you know, big panic on my part. It was just kind of like, well, here's the situation you're in, you know, exactly what to do. Turn towards that runway, you know, shut everything off, run, run a checklist if you've got time. And then, you know, come back in, you know, it's not the end of the world. And so by the time we got down, um, it, you know, had everything shut off as I'm rolling down the grass strip, I'm, you know, undoing my safety harness and everything like that, prepared to just, you know, jump, you know, jump, <laughs> yeah. out of, you know, jump out of that yeah. airplane and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And the funny thing is I didn't even get a chance to make a radio call. I was just so focused on, you know, getting the airplane back in yeah. and, you know, not worrying about it. But when my friend saw, you know, my plane come in with the propeller just kind of like suspended in midair. He was like, holy shit, what's going on? Yeah, like, uh, that's not supposed to happen. (laughs) Exactly. And so I, so I, so I get back down. I, you know, you know, jump out of that airplane so fast, um, you know, get out and, you know, the, the, you know, you can see fuel just kind of coming out the bottom of the airplane. I mean, it's, it's a steady stream. It's pouring out. So I'm like, well, I think something might've been wrong with the fuel. What ended up happening was that, um, during that annual inspection, one of the fuel lines wasn't fastened on properly. Uh, And then it just, it just came out. 
And, you know, that explained the fuel smell that explained pretty much everything as far as what happened. But, you know, I would, the biggest thing that I would stress to people is that, you know, if a plane has come out of a fresh annual inspection, just be very, very cautious. Just be very aware of everything that's going on because that engine has, you know, been largely taken apart and then put back together. And you don't know if everything's been done right. I know right. it says that it has, but, you know, in my situation, that was the same thing. Um, and that, you know, that annual inspection should have been my first clue to be, you know, you know, a lot more alert than I was. Right. I, I'm lucky that I was, you know, that I was ready for it when it happened and that it happened in a place where I didn't, you know, have to, you know, panic, right. And just come back and land the plane. But, you know, in any situation like that, when a plane's fresh out of an inspection, just be extra, you know, extra diligent with your pre-flight and, you know, vigilant once you're up in the air, because, you know, anything can happen really well something like that's hard to spot in the pre-flight too because i mean you look at the engine and stuff but you're not looking at like there's really no way you probably could have caught that on the ground that's just something that you have to look for fuel leaks or for like there's that one would be really hard to find on the ground so those first couple hours after an annual or even just anything in maintenance you got to be very careful because i mean they're humans too they can make mistakes and sometimes their mistakes can cause a lot of stress on the person flying (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And it's it, it's one of those things that I did not check for on my pre-flight. You know, if anyone's flown a Cirrus that's listening to this, you know, that's not one of those things that you check. Right. Um, you know, that cowling doesn't really come open. You know, it's a very standard pre-flight for the most part. And it is not something that I caught. And nor was it something that I ever anticipated happening. No. You know, I know what it's like, you, you know, you know, why you train for it, you see it happen to so many other people, but you never really think it can happen to you. Never. And so at that point, you know, and you've been through it as well. It, oh, it will 100% catch you off guard, no matter how much you prepare for it. For and, sure. you know, but like, like I said, your training's there for a reason. And I always tell my students when we're in the pattern now, you know, keep your patterns as tight as you possibly can, you know, while being safe, because you want to have enough airspeed and enough altitude and enough distance to make it back to your, you know, to the runway if your engine quits. Right. And it's important with altitude too. make sure you're not too low because you need that altitude sometimes. <laughs> There's nothing more useless than altitude above you. <laughs> there you go. It's a good one. Or, like or, or runway behind you. There you, you go. Know, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, like, like I said, it's just preparation is everything. Then the execution, you know, it, it really isn't that bad. The one thing that, you know, the other thing that I didn't totally take into account was just how much, you know, different everything feels and everything sounds when you do have an engine that's completely stopped even when you're practicing engine failures you know in you know in terms of instruction that engine's still running yeah you still have that kind of yeah you just you just kind of got that little vibration that little kind of reassuring hum in the back of your head like oh the engine's still gonna the loudest thing that i heard was the wind going past my you know (laughs) my door and that that was freaky for me that's that's probably what freaked me out more than anything else and um, I know someone's going to ask me this at some point. I did not think about pulling the parachute. I want to get that, you know, I want to get that clear, um, you know, in a situation like that, you know, I was probably, you know, a little bit too low for it anyway. Um, but also I had a runway right below me. I had fields to either side. If I couldn't make it back, you know, I'm like, there's no way I was pulling that shoot. It yeah, didn't the parachute even cross my mind. is not for a situation like that. I feel like the parachute's more of like a flat spin. Can't get out like last resort. It's not engine fail, pull immediately. You know, you got to figure out, <laughs> land the airplane. Cause even if you land, I'm pretty sure if you land with the parachute, it's still like enough G's that it's going to like 
compress your spine and like hurt you and you're still not going to feel very good after that so that should be your last resort at all costs to pull that yeah i mean you're not getting out unscathed even if you pull the chute you'll live but it has to be the difference between life and death now there are a lot of situations that i would want the parachute say for example an engine failure on the upwind at night in imc absolutely you're going to want to shoot right or if you're, or I know there's the a video ocean. that, that yeah, there's a video that went around on that. Um, some guy was doing a ferry flight across the Pacific and Going lost to Hawaii, the engine. Right? For, yeah, or yeah. something. It was something like that, and he lost the engine and yanked the chute out, and that pro- that probably saved his life as well. Yeah. Um, you know, if the gear, you know, if you were coming down, you know, at you know 85, 90 knots, and the gear, you know, grabs onto the water and flips you over, that could be a bad day as well. We're not all so, sully, you know. We don't have all those skills to land on the on the water like that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'd like to think that I'm sully in some aspects. Right. But, I don't want to find yeah. out though, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I never yeah. want to know. I'll tell I mean, myself my, that I can. I mean, my I mean, when my engine quit, I actually made it back to a runway. But that's all I'll say. <laughs> Not saying I'm better, you know. It's just it is what exactly. It is, yeah. <laughs> I'm just all I'm saying is I got back to the runway. So you be the judge. All I'm, yeah. saying. I'm exactly. giving you the facts. You judge for yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, awesome, man. Well, I'm glad you did a good job because I know just a lot of times you can kind of doubt what's going on and the situation can become bigger than something you can handle. But you just reverted to your training and you just landed the plane. No questions asked. Let's get on the ground. So good job. It's pretty simple at the end of the day. You know, it your is. training's there for you. Don't overcomplicate it too much. And like I said, just always, always, always just fly that airplane above everything else. It can, you know, air traffic control, for the most part, they can wait. You know, even in a situation like this, a checklist can wait, yep. right? Just always fly the airplane above sure. literally anything else. Definitely. Well, cool, man. Well, I have a couple more questions for you um, before we go. Uh, the next part I want to get into is just what's your future for aviation? Do you want to become an airline pilot? I know kind of earlier you talked about how you just love flying. You have that big goofy smile on your face when you're flying a 172, whether it's a, or a King Air or a TBM, you know? So what's your dream? What's your goals? What do you want to get out of your, your aviation career? Biggest thing, just keep getting paid to fly airplanes. Like I said, it's really, it's really that simple. I've got a lot of friends at the airlines, um, that are all doing really well. Um, and I know that will kind of be an option as time goes forward. And as my hours get closer to where they need to be, I'm about halfway there just for a reference point. Yeah. But, you know, honestly, it's not one of the, it's not one of those things that I'm dead set on, on this point. And I think that's largely because of how many opportunities that I have, um, been lucky enough to come across, you know, before even getting there, you know, I, you know, I do a lot of contract flying in a TBM and some contract flying in a King air. Um, and you know, all this CFI work that I've been doing and all these little kind of, some would call them odd jobs, but are, you know, actually really viable careers in aviation that have nothing to do with the airline industry. Um, or, you know, there's so many that I want to explore and, you know, that sort of stuff. I feel like once you get to the airlines, you know, you're there and, you know, that's kind of it, you know, you're, you know, stacking up hours and that sort of stuff. And of course, you know, you can go back and fly GA, but I feel like there's something cool about being part of the general aviation side, you know, the, the little guy, if you will, um, of people that are just around it, um, because they love it. And because it's something that they're passionate about doing for the same reason that I am, that I am. And so maybe my airline, you know, maybe the airlines are in my future, maybe they're not, but as long as I get to, you know, keep flying airplanes and, you know, you know, 
you know, even if I do it for a living or not, if I'm perfectly honest, um, if I can keep flying airplanes and, you know, enjoy myself and enjoy doing what I'm doing and feel like I'm doing good work, um, that's, you know, that's really all that matters to me at the end of the day. That's awesome, man. That's a good refreshing kind of take on this career because a lot of people chase money and, we kind of talked before we started recording is that money, you can't really count on money in this industry. I know I've said it before in other podcasts, but right now everything looks great. Yeah, to be a 787 captain, pull in like 300, 350, you know, work for Delta, American, or United, but it's aviation. It's cyclical. It's going to go down. It's going to go back up. It's going to go down, you know, so you never know what the money's going to be. So do it out of love. Don't do it out of money and you will enjoy this career and enjoy being a pilot. Exactly. And I'll also extend that to, you know, not even just, you know, the pilots that are somewhat in my shoes, but also to a lot of um, um, flight schools and other employers and whatnot. Um, look for those that have passion for aviation. And there's a very big difference between those who are, you know, going after it for a paycheck or those who kind of, you know, kind of like it. But you can definitely tell after a while who's doing it, you know, just for the money or for the, you know, the lifestyle or whatever. I do it just because I like flying. Right. And, you know, when, when you meet someone that's like that, you know, whatever they might lack in hours or experience or time in type or landings or ratings or, or types or whatever, um, their passion for it and the love that they have for um, anything involving flying will, you know, motivate them to, you know, go that extra mile as it did for me and go above and beyond what a lot of people with those types, you know, that I've seen are not willing to do because, you know, you know, the types are, you know, have worked for them for a million years. You know, someone like me, when I graduated from Aerosim, I had literally as a CFI, I had 148 hours total time because of 141. And when I came back here, you know, there were guys that had, you know, two, 10 times as many hours as I did. And I'm right. working right alongside them. Um, but because of the passion that I have for, you know, not just teaching, but for aviation as a whole, um, that has gotten me a lot further than any amount of hours, you know, has, you know, ever really could. And it's opened up, you know, a lot of opportunities for me that I'm, you know, outrageously thankful to have had because I know how rare it can, you know, it is in this industry to, you know, just have opportunities come at, you know, as you know, at such low time. For sure. You know, get, you know getting more, you know, getting multi-engine time in a King Air at, you know, 300 or 400 hours like that. No one's, no one gets that. But, you know, when you're passionate about something, you don't have those, you don't kind of put those, you know, limits in your mind mentally, and you'll be willing to do that extra work and, you know, seek out those extra opportunities um, in order to, you know, make you happy and be able to do, you know, do something that you really enjoy doing. So. Definitely. Well said, man. Well said. You have a good perspective out on this career. Yeah, it's, 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 it's nice being a part of, you know, you know, an industry that understands that. And that's, like I said, it's one of those things that I enjoy about flight instructing because most of these guys that I'm teaching, you know, they are the part 61 guys. They're not going to go off to airlines and do all that fancy stuff. They might be, um, you know, you might just kind of catch them at a fly in on the weekend. Right. And they're, they're the ones that, you know, really kind of keep, Keep keep my interest and keep my love for for aviation alive, especially you know as a CFI, where you can you know be in you know be in the airplane for hours on end doing maneuvers and you know all that sort of stuff. It can definitely get mundane, but you know when you you know when you look over at your student after they you know just 
lay a, a fat stick of butter, you know, on their runway when they get back and see the <laughs> smile on their face. It's like, well, there you go. You know, or when they, you know, when they, you know, finally get their license and I see them out on the ramp, you know, taking friends up or taking family up or whatever, like that, that's, that's what keeps me in it. So, you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely get you know, this career has just given me so much and I'm, you know, just once again, just outrageously thankful for everything that just brought my way. That's what's up, man. Well, cool. Well, I have one more section for you. It's the rapid fire section. So if you're ready to do that, we'll go ahead and get into that. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask you these questions. My soul is prepared. Let's do it. All right. Do you like Piper or Cessna better? Ooh, as a pilot, as a pilot, I would say Piper. Okay. They're much more, I think they're much more of an honest airplane to fly. They're a better cross country machine and they feel um, very robust as a CFI Cessna. Yeah. Didn't um, take anything. I, f- I, f- I find they, they can take, they can take so much abuse and they'll love you anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, they, they can put up with so much stuff. They're so forgiving. And, you know, I think just a much better teaching platform. Perfect. What's your favorite thing about aviation? Um, it's a tie between a couple of things. One, the people. I've met some of the most incredible people. I've made lifelong friends um, just in the you know relatively short amount of time I've spent in this industry, um, and they always keep me coming back. You know, I can I can literally go into a restaurant. It, it happened the other day. Um, I went into a restaurant. I'm with a couple friends. You know, neither one of them are pilots. Um, I've got my TBM shirt on, <laughs> and some guy walks past me. You know, he knows his shirt. He says, "Hey, are you a pilot?" I'm like. Yeah, I am actually. And, and he flies, um, he was a CJ2 guy. Oh, cool. Um, so he flew CJ2s out of a field about 50 miles away from where I lived. And we, and he literally put his friend's table, you know, next to mine just so that, you know, just so that the two of us could talk. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, it's, 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 it's that kind of community. And we all have, you know, a way of finding each other and, um, sharing, you know, sharing the passion that we all have for this. So that's for one, sure. you know, one thing. The other thing is just the passion that I have for it. Like yeah. I said, you know, it's, it's, it has, you know, turned me into, um, a person and has unlocked a work ethic and character and whatnot in myself that I don't think I would possess if I didn't have as much passion for aviation as right. I do. Definitely. All right, here's one. Would you rather fly a full ILS DME arc or an NDB approach? Well, on the basis that I had that I flew a um, a DME arc to an ILS in IMC on my instrument check ride. I think that's the one that I'll take. There you go. Yeah. I never flew one until I actually got a freight job. I didn't even do one in training, but I went down to Mexico and they don't have GPS pretty much anywhere. So I've been pretty shooting, much. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been shooting ILS DME departures and approaches with tons of mountains around. So it was pretty interesting. Yeah. Cool. All right. Here's one. Do you like Airbus or Boeing? If it's not Boeing, I'm not going. But at the end of the day, whichever one I get paid to fly. <laughs> All right, here's another one: uh, CRJ or Embraer. Same, same answer. Ooh, I'll take the leaf blower any day of the week. CRJ. <laughs> What's your favorite city to overnight in? Ooh, favorite city to overnight in? Um, Seattle. Mountains, beach, or cities? As flying, um, would you rather fly over mountains, beach, or the city? Oh, beach. Beach. Beach, 100%. Nothing like a little low and slow in a tail dragger as the sun going down <laughs> over California. You can't beat it. Who in the industry would you like to meet most? Um, well, I know he's not around anymore, but I'd love to meet Charles Lindbergh. Okay, cool. I like it. Rest Some- in peace, Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> R.I.P. Something you <laughs> wish you knew before becoming a pilot. How addicting it is. 
Yeah, and that's I, a good I mean, one. I mean, no that, that yet. I mean, I mean that honestly. It's it's one of those things where it it is kind of like a drug. You know, once you kind of once you get the bug and it bites you, it's got a hold on you for the rest of your life. And you will, like I said, you will go to the extreme to maintain that. You know, be it, you know, spent, you know, spending all the money that you can. Like I, I remember, like once I got back. Um, and even still now, like I'll drive Uber on occasion for like a couple hours. So just so I can, you know, throw that into my flight account and, you know, go putz around <laughs> right. in the Skyhawk for a couple hours. You for know what sure. I mean? I mean, it, it is, it is, it has, it will drive you to do pretty much anything to keep that alive. So it is, it is very addicting. Definitely. No, I would completely agree with you there. Uh, I got a couple more for you. Let me find them real quick. What's your dream airplane to fly? Concord. Concord. Nice. Good luck with that one. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, what's your favorite airline livery? Ooh, favorite airline. Ooh, I will. Um, let's put it this way. So there was. Um, so when Continental was still around, this was I want to say like 1999. They painted a Boeing triple seven in the Peter Max livery, and if you go online and look it up, it is one of the coolest looking liveries that I have ever seen in my I'll entire life. All, cool. all sorts, all sorts of colors. I think they left it on until like 2006 or 2007, but it was designed for the year 2000, and it's you know pink and blue and white, just all these different colors. It's That's it's awesome. one of the coolest that I've ever seen. I'll have to check it out. Speaking of speaking of which, on the subject of liveries. Um, us based carriers need to step their game up <laughs> real quick. I mean, Southwest, you're all right. I'll, you know, Alaska, I see you, you're stepping it up a little bit, but come on, United, yeah. seriously. <laughs> I, I like Americans. I kind of just like the, the white with the flag on the tail and everything, but I know what you mean. I actually saw someone post on Facebook. I think it was Norwegian. They had a plane with uh, Babe Ruth on the tail. It's like, why do they, what, like, why? <laughs> I don't understand I why, mean, but at least they're trying to do something <laughs> different. It's like Babe Ruth isn't from Norway. Like what's going on here? <laughs> I mean, I mean, Frontier kind of does the same thing. It's just a bunch of bunnies and foxes and bears yeah. sitting on the back of their tail. I'm like, hey, no one else is doing it. Or right. you can go the spirit approach and just paint your plane to look like a banana. Right. Like, give, 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 give me some, give me something to work with besides just kind of this beige swoosh going down the side of the airplane. I like the jet blue blueprint one too. I think that one's kind of cool. Oh, the blueprint's great. Yeah. All right, man. Sounds good. What else do I got here for you? Do you like long trips or short trips? Uh, I like the long ones. It depends on if I'm flying it though. Yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah. There's nothing worse unless you're in business class on, uh, I've got to fly standby business class to Shanghai from Dallas. So it was like a 16 hour flight, but I got meal service, lay flat bed. It was awesome. <laughs> Ooh, what, air, what airline was that? American, the 787 from Dallas to Shanghai. Oh man, that, that was, was good. Nice. That was, that was good I do time. have, I might have you beat. I got, um, one, so one of my buddies, his father works for Emirates. Okay, yeah, and you, we you got, got me beat. <laughs> and we and we get we, let me see we got first class from Dubai to L.A. That oh, was man. that was one of that was probably the most lit experience I've ever had in my entire life. That's when you don't want the flight to end. You're like, oh, let's let's go back. Yeah, let's keep it going. I, <laughs> I didn't want to sleep. Yeah. I mean, it was a long it was a long flight, but I'm like, wait, why am I sleeping? I have an open bar. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, cool, Colin. Those are all the questions I have for you. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, it's just really great to hear kind of your perspective on this career and why you like aviation, why you're a flight instructor, and how you do it for the good reasons, not for taking advantage of your students or just doing it for flight time. So I'm really thankful that you're able to come on, kind of share your story, and kind of just talk about it, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for doing this. This is something that you know you don't get in you know a lot of industries, especially in aviation. Hearing all the stories of you know, people, you know, like, you know, 
you know, Maria or Gisela or any of these other guys, you know, it keeps me motivated on my days off. And so I can only imagine what it's doing for, you know, some kid like me when I was 13, you know, what it must mean for them. So <laughs> appreciate good it, on you. That means a lot. I really do appreciate it. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to create these and just talk with people and just figure out like everyone is a pilot, but everyone does things so differently. They came about it differently, but we all love aviation. We all have that in common. Yeah, exactly. And that is a wrap of episode number 31 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Aviation, thank you guys so much for listening to the episode. I truly appreciate the time that you guys put into these to listen to these and letting me know what they are like. If you love the podcast, head to patreon.com slash pilot the pilot. Support us there. Do know that that money goes back into this podcast, into Pilot the Pilot to create better stuff, whether it's equipment, software, anything that monthly fees or anything that we need to do to cover to make this podcast, that is how we pay for that. So please go there if you want to support us. It can be as little as a dollar, as much as however much you want to give, but a dollar is good enough for me. I appreciate your support. Aviation, my one awesome Aviation swag that I love right now is my in-flight cam audio kit and just camera holder that I got from my GoPro. It is amazing. Go ahead and check them out. They make some great stuff, and it's in-flight cam, and they make some amazing stuff. So go ahead and check them out. Aviation, with that, that is a wrap. Next episode will be next Tuesday. I haven't decided who it's going to be. I might do the Ask Me Anything Pilot the Pilot episode so you guys can finally get a little insight on my story. It's also going to be the day after my birthday, so I turn 28 next week, and I'm not looking forward to that at all. But go ahead and check out that episode. I hope you enjoy this episode. Have a great day, and happy flying. Stay warm.